Lord, we ask at this time that you search our hearts, that you examine our thoughts, and that you clear away anything that might be there that competes for our attention. We ask that you quiet our minds and that you quiet the distractions around us so that your Holy Spirit can move among us freely and that it can move through the word as it is read and that you can shapen our understanding, grow us in likeness of Christ so that we can have a greater appreciation for who you are, for what you've done, for your love, And also that we can aspire to be more like you. We ask that you move us closer towards that goal of perfection during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture today comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Verses 4 through 9. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the lake of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today we're going to talk about foolishness. And of course it's not really foolish, but it may appear foolish to those who who do not understand it. And it makes sense in God's world, it makes sense in God's economy, but for us it seems strange. Just like this story that we just read seems very strange. Uh, In fact, the entire book of Numbers seems strange. If you ever try to read through it, it's mostly numbers. That's, That's mostly what it is, it's measurements and genealogies. And I remember as a child when I would... uh, um, my dad and I, every year, we'd sit down and say, we're going to read through the whole Bible this year. And I think one year we, we made it through, uh, or, or at least through most of it. Um, but I, I remember we tried it several times, and we always would get hung up on numbers. That was about the, the point where he knew that he was, he was losing my attention. And, uh, and so I, I've, I've said many times, I will never preach from the book of Numbers. And, of course, you can never say that you will never do something in your ministry because then God will lead you to it. 
Well, this past week, uh, we had a day, it was a holy day, on, uh, on Wednesday was the day of the Holy Cross, and we don't really observe that in the Methodist Church, but it's part of the liturgical calendar. They observe it in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's the day of the, the Holy Cross. So on that day, I looked up the scriptures that they had listed for that, that special uh, liturgical occasion, and this was the scripture that was there. And I read it, and I thought, wow, something good can come from the book of Numbers. And, and this, this is narrative, this story, and there's not very much in the book of Numbers, but any time there's narrative, any time there's story going on in Scripture, we need to pay attention because, as we've said before, God is trying to tell us something through that story. And especially if it's something in the Old Testament, we can, if, if we look at it, we, we can realize that it's actually pointing us in some way to the promises that were uh, fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. And this story is no exception. It is a strange story about these snakes coming in, biting everybody. They're dying left and right, and then all of a sudden they have to look at this bronze serpent that Moses made and holds up, and it's, it's kind of like magic. You know, They look at it, and all of a sudden they're, they're healed. And it's very strange, but, but what it's doing is it is foreshadowing... Jesus Christ. It is foreshadowing that a world that is lost in sin, that a world is dying to sin, can look to Christ and be healed. Now Jesus speaks to this directly in the Gospel of John when he sits down and he's talking to Nicodemus. And, and uh, in chapter 3, the book of John, we, we have the most famous verse in the Bible, the one that people you see at football games up in the bleachers and, and kids uh, learn it. Um, Hannah Claire just learned it a few weeks ago. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that verse comes uh, within Jesus' uh, talk to Nicodemus. But right before Jesus says those words that so many people have memorized and cherished, right before that, Jesus refers to the story of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm fulfilling the prophecy of that story. That story pointed towards me. And now the Son of Man must be lifted up just as the bronze serpent was. Um, now what Jesus is actually doing is he's playing with words. It's really interesting because the Greek word for lifted up and even our, our English phrase for lifted up can mean a couple different things. First of all, there is the physical act of lifting. Moses lifted up the serpent. And in the same way, the Son of Man, Jesus, was physically lifted up onto a cross. But lifted up also could mean glorified, exalted. And so Jesus is playing with that language. He's saying the Son of Man will be lifted up physically. And when he is, he will also be glorified. He will also be exalted. And so that's what this, this story in Numbers is, uh, is foreshadowing. But as I read this Wednesday, uh, I, I decided to read with, uh, with Claire a few days later the same passage and ask her what she thought about it. And, uh, and, you know, everybody's getting bit by snakes, and, and, and God tells Moses to make a snake and hold it up. And she asked a very good question. She said, why did it have to be a snake? I mean, why did Moses have to make a snake? Why couldn't it be a symbol of hope? You know, why can't it be something positive that we, we, they look to when they're saved? 
And, and uh, that's a very good question because in reality, all you have to do is listen to the, the kids' responses up there. Snakes, they give us the heebie-jeebies, don't they? I mean, I think that's just a universal reaction to snakes, whether it's poisonous or not. We don't like snakes. They, 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 they scare us. And I know that non-poisonous snakes are good for the ecosystem and they help balance out the poisonous snakes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I'm fine with non-poisonous snakes as long as they don't come around the chickens, my chickens, and as long as they don't come around me. I don't want to see them. Because snakes, as, as one of the kids said, creep us out. And so when we, when we think about that, we have that reaction, and, and I'm sure that, that they had that reaction back then too. The thought has had to occur to, occur to more than just one person. Why did it have to be a snake? Why did Moses have to make a snake? Why couldn't he make something really pleasant to look at that would give us all some sort of inspiration or hope and we can look at that and be healed from our snake bites? Well, the reason why is because God set it up where the thing that was destroying them would also be the thing that healed them. And that sounds strange, but in God's own way, it works. Again, look to the cross. The cross for us now is a symbol of hope, a symbol of love, a symbol of sacrifice and God's love for us, a symbol of salvation. But that's not what the cross was when Jesus died on it. The cross was a despised symbol. It gave people the heebie-jeebies to look at. It, it, it represented death. It was, it was a method of execution. It also represented sin. Because you had to do something terrible to, to be put on it, usually. And so the cross was a symbol of death and of sin. But yet, God used that symbol of death and sin to deliver us from death and sin. And that's why Moses had to lift up a serpent. Because the thing that was destroying them had to be lifted up. It had to be changed. It had to be exalted and only then could they be freed from the thing that was actually destroying them. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks a little bit about this. and we can get a, uh, For us, it, it's hard for us to, to wrap our heads around how despised the cross actually was. Because for us, it's become a, a symbol of, of so many good things. We wear them around our neck. I've got one lit up with light bulbs behind me. I mean, it's, for us, it's, it's a positive image. But it wasn't always that way. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the foolishness of what we preach, we save those who believe. And so the cross, a symbol of death and sin, appeared to be foolishness to Jewish people. Through that, God saved those who believed. Now, just to get a clearer understanding of what this represented, to think of how foolish this actually looked to the people who lived back then, it would be a lot like 
if we walked around with necklaces with little electric chairs on them. And if I had an electric chair up here on the, a picture of an electric chair up on the wall behind me lit up with light bulbs, that would look foolish. People would walk in and they would think, what in the world is going on here? And that's how it looked to the early church, or in the early church to the outside world. When they would see people cherishing the cross and claiming the cross and, and forming their spiritual identity around it and calling the cross their symbol of salvation and their symbol of hope and freedom, it looked foolish. Just as I'm sure the people gathering around and looking at a bronze serpent as they were dying from a snake bite probably looked foolish. But that's what God does. He takes what defeats us and he redeems us through it. Now we can say that about a lot of different things in life. Uh, In sports we we say things like um, defeat builds character. Losing builds character. Uh, And and the real world, we, we say similar things like that. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But even as, as uh, believers, we believe that what does kill us only leads us into something better, into a better life. We believe that death is the doorway into uh, eternal life. Um, and, and so these things that, that normally we, we can say defeat us or bring us down, God finds a way to make us stronger to make us better, to move us closer to perfection through them. And it's always been this way. Just look at the way that uh, he has set up nature to work. When something dies, you put it in the ground, and then what does it do? It fertilizes, and new life comes out of that. That's God's economy. That is God's ingenuity. And last week we talked about uh, our ability to be creative And how the Holy Spirit can inspire us to be creative in new ways. Well, that is God's creativity right there. That he can take something terrible, something horrible, something that represents death, and he can bring life out of it. God regenerates. Where we waste, where humankind wastes, we build things, we're creative, we come up with all these gadgets and and automobiles and and jets and all these things, and then what happens? One day they're outdated, and then we have a bunch of waste that we don't know what to do with. And we try to recycle some parts, but, but we're, we're always behind the ball on that. We're never really able to regenerate properly. God is able to regenerate constantly. Constant regeneration. But it requires surrender on our part. Just as the people in the wilderness had to come to Moses and say, okay, we were wrong. Pray to God for us. Just as as believers now have to come to the cross and say, I'm a sinner. I'm dying. I'm a slave to sin and death. I need something to save me. There has to be surrender on our parts in order for God to regenerate But it's a constant process. And even before, I I talked about Jesus as a prophet, even before he died on the cross, he was talking about it to Nicodemus, and he's talking about it to his followers. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, long before the cross was a thought in, in any of his apostles' mind, long before the crucifixion, he said, whoever takes up your cross must do so daily to follow me. 
Now, I'm sure they would have been familiar with the language that to take up the cross meant you had to pick it up and carry it yourself. And so they thought, okay, well, what he means is you just got to pick up your load and you got to be willing to sacrifice day in and day out and carry, carry your own weight. But he was also foreshadowing his own crucifixion. And he said, you must do this daily. You must be willing to sacrifice daily. Because if regeneration, if God's economy is constant and he's constantly trying to renew what is falling apart and what is dying, then we have to constantly be willing to surrender. And that contradiction happens then, where the symbol of our death becomes the symbol of our freedom. And that's why in the very next verse, after Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me, the very next verse, he says, whoever keeps his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. And there again we have that contradiction where God is saying something that appears to be foolishness to you, something that doesn't make sense, something that you never would have thought of is actually the way I work. You give up your life and I will give you new life. But if you try so hard to cling on to your life, you're going to lose it. Now this is the case in our lives on a daily basis. We have to surrender. We have to be willing to surrender our lives for the life of Christ if we want to live the life that he has prepared for us. Have any of you just dug in your heels and and determined, I'm going to make something happen even when it seems like everything in the world is telling you not to make this happen? I'm embarrassed to admit a time where I did that. I felt like uh, there was a lot of pressure being put on, on uh, me from friends, from family about, you know, y'all, y'all need to buy your own house. Y'all living in an apartment. You need to invest in, in property. That's, that's where it's at. You need to have your own yard, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and that was probably good advice. Uh, but but I, Claire and I saw a house, and we, we went out there, and we liked it, and we said, okay, we're going to buy this house. And then one thing after another started falling through. Like, it was like God was trying to say, do not buy this house. Do not buy, and he kept getting louder, don't do it, don't do it. And everything was falling apart. And even our real estate agent at one point said, aren't you starting to wonder if this is the right thing for y'all to do? But rather than surrendering daily, rather than taking up my cross daily, and rather than, than saying, not my will, but thine. I tried so hard to keep that life that I was trying to, to steer me and, and, and the family towards. And I, I, was gonna, I was bound and determined to make it happen. We wound up buying the house, and then it just wasn't a good situation after that. It was, it, we, we wound up losing a lot more money than we spent. But it was like God was trying to tell me something, and I wouldn't listen. Because I wasn't in a place where I was daily surrendering to him. To gain life, to live the life that he wants us to live, we have to be willing to sacrifice daily the life that we want to live. The life that we want to live has to become the life he wants to give us. And in order for us to do that, we have to realize that there is life in the process of dying. That death of the self and the self-will brings so much more promise and hope and redemption for us. The ways of God are a mystery. They often seem very full of contradiction. The thing that destroys us will save us. What kind of sense does that make? Death is a doorway to life. 
We profess to believe this. We say this every week when we do the Apostles' Creed. We, we say we believe in the life everlasting. But it's weird that death is a doorway to life. Losing your life means gaining it. This sounds like foolishness to most people, but for those of us who believe, we understand that this is just the brilliance of God at work, renewing and regenerating us, making us whole again. And that's why the cross, which should be a despised symbol of sin, death, and execution, is now a symbol of hope, a symbol of love. We cherish it and we claim it. We recognize it as the way God gives us new life today and every day for all eternity. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us life even when things look hopeless. You give us the promise of new life when we realize that we must surrender our wants and our desires to you. Lord, we ask that you make us more faithful in that that process of submission. We confess that we are often reluctant. We try to cling on to the things we want to make happen when they may be completely opposed to your will. We ask that you make us faithful in surrendering on a more consistent basis so that the process of regeneration in our lives and in our hearts can be constant. We thank you that the things that can bring us down and destroy us can also be the things you use to save us. To you, to your Son, Jesus Christ, be all honor and glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen.